Great to have our live stream audience joining us. Let me get that phone in the pocket, get it out of the way. Tonight we are continuing in our study in the Kings. We're in 2 Kings and we're in chapter 6. And this is a very interesting chapter. There's three different stories. Two of them are centered around the nation of Israel and the political landscape and the impending uh, siege that Syria uh, brought against Israel at Samaria, the capital. And, uh, and in the midst of, of this heavy-weighted you know, uh, political climate in Israel at that time and the national interest and security, um, God throws a story in here that just seems so sig- insignificant and as if it's kind of like a nuisance. Why, why would he even talk about that? What's the, it's even difficult to find meaning and purpose out of it. And uh, so I struggled with that today. Um, I, I think a lot of pastors will try to, uh, they'll use allegory, you know, and allegorize the story, make it something that the Bible's not saying, try to use it that way. And I got to be honest, I've done that before. Uh, I'm not proud of it, but I have done that. Um, but I really want to just bring out what the scripture says. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into this first story, which seems to be a pity, a pitiful little story. Uh, doesn't really fit the whole chapter, but it's there for a reason. Father, we thank you that your plans are not our plans. The Bible clearly tells us that your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your thoughts are higher. You have full understanding of all things. Therefore, when you make decisions, they're not uh, hopes. They're not uh, possibilities. Uh, It is sound, biblical uh, decision-making. And we know that it's because of our God who is sovereign that you're able to do that. So that even things that seem so huge, too big for us to to manage, you can manage easily. And even the little things that we think are beneath you, you seem to pay attention to. And we're thankful for that too. And tonight, let this word speak to us individually, and may it speak to us as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first story is the recovery of an axe head. Uh, The sons of the prophets under Elisha. Are, it's, they're growing. There's more of them than they've ever had before. The old dormitory that they all lived in uh, is not enough now. We've got too many guys. And so they had to build a larger dormitory. They came to Elisha. Look what it says in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan and each of us Get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. And then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So just to quickly say a word about this, um, these again are young men who are being specially instructed by Elisha. They had this communal living arrangement, and they need a larger place. Elisha was not the one who said, let's, let's, we got a problem. Let, let me give you the answer for how to fix it. He, he did not initiate this plan. 
the young men saw the need and they said, let us do this. I like that because I think a lot of times uh, people who are spiritually uh, leaders, spiritual leaders, uh, teachers of the Bible, could be a Sunday school teacher, could be a small group leader, could be a pastor, one of the elders, whatever. I, I think a lot of times people think that they are the one that should make all the decisions and that they are the ones who have the only decisions. And the truth is, that's not what we see here. Um, we see the young men who recognize the need for a larger building, not Elisha. He's not worried about that. He's focused on teaching. And they said, would you allow us to do it? All they needed from him was his permission. They didn't need his plan. They didn't need him to lay out a blueprint for what he wanted. They just said, would you allow us to do it? And he said, sure, go ahead. He, he, he authorized it. And then they asked him another question. Would you come down there with us to the Jordan as we're working on it? Would you be with us? And he said, sure, I'll go with you. So, so far, harmless is pretty interesting. Verse 4, so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, I love that word, felling. My wife looked at me one day. I said, honey, I've got to fell that tree in the backyard that's hanging over the... And she looks at me and goes, you're going to what? I said, I'm going to fell the tree. She goes, when did you start using the word fell? She knew what it meant, but she's like, that's not really what you would normally say. You're going to cut the tree down. I said, well, you know, I'm just I'm more developed, more, you know, so sophisticated in my old age. That's what it comes down to. So here they're going to fell a tree. And uh, and while while this one young man was was cutting the tree, an axe head that was that he was using fell into the water of the Jordan and he cried out. He didn't just speak out. He cried out, alas, my master, speaking directly to Elisha, who's there. Uh, it was borrowed. This is not my axe head. This is a borrowed axe. And then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and he took it. Now that, that that's a, you know, okay. What, what, first of all, what's the significance of this story? Why? Why? Okay, yeah, there's a miracle. But why? What's, what's the big deal here? We're talking about one individual who loses an axe that he borrowed. He's, he's really upset about it. He tells Elisha about it. Elisha comes over and asks him where he lost it or where, where it fell in the water. And then he takes a stick and it rises up, you know, a miracle. And the young man grabs it and brings it out. He's got the axe head back. Okay. Why? Um, let's break it down just a little bit. Let's see what God has in this. Again, we're not out to try to allegorize and make this what we want it to be. Let's find out what the Bible's saying, why it's here, okay? So first of all, uh, it's interesting that Elisha asked him for the exact location. That would signify, even though the axe head came off and went in the water, listen now, it wasn't lost. A lot of times we react to things that we cannot find. We'll say it's lost. It's not lost. It's there. 
You just don't know how to retrieve it. And the waters of the Jordan were swift. Obviously, that had to be the case here because the guy, if if the axe head flew off in the water, and it says he knew where, just wade out, reach down, feel around, you'll find it. He didn't wait out, didn't even think to wait out. Why? Because he couldn't. He didn't lose the accent. He couldn't retrieve the accent. And in our lives, too often, we throw things in the category of it's gone, it's lost, I'll never. And that's not the case. It's that you don't know how to retrieve it. And you need to lean into God. That's what he did. He immediately calls for Elisha, the man of God. And don't treat it like it's gone forever. You know, um, now we can, you say, well, you're allegorized. No, I'm not really. I'm, I'm just telling you, if you've got a loved one that doesn't know the Lord, you say they're lost. Well, they are sinfully in that condition of lostness. No question about it. But, but God can retrieve anybody that's lost, right? So you keep going to God. You never stop going to God and making that request of the Lord. And know that God is, has His purpose and His reasons and His timing. And again, recently I heard another story of somebody who had not been, had, their spouse had been praying for decades. And then they finally received the Lord. And there was rejoicing in that home. She never stopped praying. I just think there's something there. That's really significant to me. It matters. And so he asked Elisha. Elisha comes over, takes a stick, throws it in the water at the location where it came off. And why was the boy so upset about it? Well, he said, I I borrowed it. Okay, well, go to the hardware store and buy another one. Wait a minute. We're talking about Israel in a day when... Iron was a rarity. If you had an iron axe head, you paid good money for that. This is a boy that's in seminary. He doesn't have an income. He's in serious trouble. It's going to take months. If he were to get a side job, it's going to take a long time to recover it. But he did the right thing. He immediately contacted the man of God. And so... The man of God raises it. I mean, it's just amazing to me. So it's possible for God to do miraculous things in the simple areas of our lives. Things that we take for granted, things that we quit on, things that we just feel like it's too small, it's not a big deal, I lost it. And God's not interested in that. Wait a minute. Uh, The same God who in the same chapter is going to deal with the nation of Israel in their political and in their national defense is the same God who comes to one young seminary student who has a problem. It's not a big problem. It's a really little problem. And God provides a miracle. God cares about us individually. He invests in our lives individually. The Bible says his thoughts toward us are greater than the sand. 
So I think we can forget that sometimes. And sometimes we get this idea of God in our head that God's great, God's big, God, and, and we translate, and that's true, but we translate that, we play it out, we flesh it out into he's only interested in big things. This story says different. That's why this story is in the backdrop of a great big problem that Israel has. In the one chapter, God deals with something that seems insignificant to one individual. It's a big deal, but everybody else is insignificant. And he also deals with the whole nation in a trial. Pretty cool. So that's what I've drawn from this. Um, I was taken back to a story, and I looked it up just to make sure I got it right, of William Gladstone, uh, the prime minister of Britain. And there was a particular man who uh, swept the streets adjacent to Parliament and the House of Commons and all of that. And so those who would come to the Parliament, to House of Commons for business, they were very familiar with this man. They knew him. He was just a street sweeper. And they noticed, one, one Christian man noticed he hadn't been coming out to sweep. So he found where the man lived, and he went to his house and found that he lived in the attic of a home. Very, very simple life. Hardly any material things at all. And the man had fallen sick. And he sat down with him, and he prayed with him, and he said, has, have you been alone up here by yourself the last few weeks? And the man said, oh, no. He said, uh, uh, Mr. Gladstone uh, visits me. He said, you mean William Gladstone, the prime minister of Britain? He goes, yes, he, he sat right on the stool that you're sitting on. And the man was taken by that, that the leader of parliament, the prime minister of Britain had time for the man who was sweeping the streets but was sick and would go and visit him. I love that story. Doesn't that speak to your heart that that's really just a picture of God with us? So everybody matters. Every situation matters. And if you are a child of God, then you reflect the glory of God. You should by your actions, by your behavior, by your work, which means that when an individual is hurting, we go out of our busy schedule, out of our busy ways, and we go down the side path, and we find that person, and we sit with them, and we pray with them. We care for them. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what this story teaches me anyway. God loves the little things just like he loves the big things. He can handle it all, and he does. Let's move on. Verse 8, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, at such and such a place shall, my, shall, uh, place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus, he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. So this was happening a lot. 
that the king of Syria was going, trying to strategically put his camp in a location where he could, you know, come after the, the, the uh, Israel and, and, and the king of Israel. And the man of God, being Elisha, the prophet, was telling the king where the Syrian king was going to set up shop, what his strategic plan was. So you had the intelligence department of Syria laying a strategy to try and trap Israel. And you have the counterintelligence of Israel, one man, Elisha, who is literally uh, hindering uh, Syria in their attempt to take Syria, uh, take Israel. So it's pretty cool. Uh, this is happening again and again and again. Finally, the king of Syria, he's just kind of really troubled by it. It says, and the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, so when it says servants, it means literally his court, those who served him in his administration. And he said, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, we've got a spy here, and they're going to the king of Israel and telling us, telling them where we're going to be camping. I want to know who the spy is. And their response is, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Wow. So you've got Elisha who knows what the king of Syria is planning in the privacy of his own bedroom. Okay. God really does. God orchestrates everything. Our God is sovereign. There's not, the Bible even says that before you ever speak, the Lord knows the words that are going to come out of your mouth. Now, that's funny because think about that. So let's say you say something and you wish you hadn't said it. Oh, forgive me, Lord. The Lord already knew you were going to say it before you did. He had already forgiven you. If you're a child of God, all sins are forgiven, right? So, so here God is really working through Elisha. Elisha is doing the Lord's work here. And he said, verse 14, Go and see where he is, Elisha, that I may send and seize him. It was told him before he is in Dothan. So now the first thing that jumps out at you in this story, or at least it jumped out of, out of the story for me, is how the servants of the Syrian king told him that it was Elisha the prophet who was giving the king of Israel the heads up on the plans of the Syrian army. They thought that their problem was Elisha. How did, you know, who's the spy in my camp? There is no spy king. It's Elisha, the prophet. He's the problem. They thought it was Elisha. That that was their biggest problem, Elisha. Boy, did they miscalculate. They did not give God any credit. They thought by capturing Elisha, it would end what's going on here. Are you serious? You don't think God can lay his plans on top of your plans without a particular man? God is always sovereign. He's not just sovereign when he has Elisha. Listen now, please hear me. God is not just sovereign 
when your pastor is following God. God is sovereign when pastors fall. Yet you watch in churches where there is a failure and people completely lose it because they, like the Syrians, had placed their hope in the person representing God rather than God. You see the danger in that? Here they are. They're the enemy of the Lord. And they're giving Elisha all the credit, and they think if we can get him, we can take care of this problem. Here we are Christians, and sometimes we're just as guilty of following after a man and not realizing that whether someone who's in leadership is faithful or unfaithful, my God is always, always faithful. It does not shake my faith because my faith was not in the man. My faith is in God. And to the degree that that man follows God, praise God for that. But if that man is unfaithful to God, my God's still in, in control. We shouldn't lose it. Amen? Now, I'm not saying all this because I'm planning to be unfaithful. <laughs> I, I, I want to finish out my days in the Lord, not outside the Lord's will, right? But I'm just, this is the, the, I'm getting this from the text. This is what's going on here. They're putting their hope in a person. Uh-uh. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, it wasn't Elisha. He's merely the tool in the hand of God. God's ways are being fulfilled all over this earth, even right now. You know, Congress just passed the Marriage Act, this, this marriage bill that literally codifies same-sex marriage. You say, okay, what does that really mean? Okay, in simple terms, it means this. It means that in the confines of your church, you can believe what the Bible says, that marriage is between one man and one woman. In your own mind, inside your home, you can believe. And one man, one woman is what God designed for marriage. But this bill just passed, and basically now what it says is outside your home and outside your church, you cannot state that position. That is going against the law. You have to be able to recognize and show tolerance for anybody who wants to marry. And Congress, those who were in favor of this, by the way, in 19, I looked it up, 19, I think it was 97 or 98, Bill Clinton was the president. I do know that. There was another bill, a marriage bill that was passed. You know what that marriage bill said? It said that in the United States of America, we believe marriage is one man and one woman. In our country, in 1997, Congress passed it. Get this. 85 votes for, 14 votes against. 1997, yeah. In this short of time, which is one, inside one generation, now the majority of Congress says that's no longer the case, and they've codified 
it, they have repealed that law. So now if you speak, now right now it's so new, that, but you guaranteed, now people can come after you if publicly you make that claim that the Bible says this. You have a right to it privately. You have a right to it in your church. And by the way, this is just the first step. Do you think they're going to stop there? Now there will be freedom of religion lawsuits like nobody's business as they try to completely shut you up and I up about what the Bible says. This is just step one. So it is a sad day. Now, is that sad or what? And yet, our God is in complete control. So, am I concerned? Yes. Am I uh, losing it? Absolutely not. Will I no longer speak publicly? Are you kidding? The Bible, Jesus is the one that gave me my mandate. Give unto Caesars what is Caesars, and unto God what is God's. And I will not allow Caesar to pass laws on my life that go against God's law. That's where the fight is for me. So privately, yes, I speak it. Publicly, I can speak it. God says it, I believe it, and I can speak it. Could I suffer for it? Could you suffer for it? Yes, we could. But God is in control. Amen? We have to, we have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge. Keep in mind that God is in control. Don't ever lose that. Now, here's a story here, okay? So, so now you have the, 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 the interest of Israel is at stake because the Syrians want to take them out. But God has done something. He has, he has partnered with man to fulfill his will. He used Elisha as a tool in his hand to turn back the king of Syria. By the way, that has been the case for modern Israel since they gained their independence as a state a Jewish state back in 1947. They, the United Nations in 1947 voted that Israel is a Jewish state. They took the land of Palestine and they divided it. They partitioned it. And they gave a slither to Israel the size of, of uh, New Jersey. Surrounded on all sides by Arabs, by Palestine. They did that. And the very next day, less than 24 hours after Israel became a Jewish state, not some, all of the neighbors to Israel, Palestinians and Arab nations, rose up and started a battle against Israel. They wanted to destroy any sign of a Jewish state within 24 hours after they were granted that by the United Nations. But God said, uh-uh, they are going to be a nation, and there is a place for them. These are my holy, chosen, and dearly loved, and you will not destroy them. And so what does he do? They, they, they come up against Israel. 
little Israel. I mean, all the way around, all the nations around them. You've got Lebanon, you've got uh, uh, Syria, you've got Jordan, you've got the transatlantic, you've got the Egyptians, all of them came after Israel. They could not overtake that little state the size of New Jersey. Isn't that great? God providing, God protecting. But that's not it. That's not the only thing. Listen to this. Ten years later, Israel gave the entire Sinai Peninsula, which is larger than the whole state of Israel. We say, well, wait a minute. They didn't. You said it was the size of New Jersey. It was. But not only did God defeat the enemy that came up against Israel ten years earlier, God gave them the Sinai Peninsula. They took the victory. God expanded them. They also went ahead and took the West Bank of Jordan for security purposes because of the war to provide security. Ten years later, uh, Egypt, the king, or the he was he's a dictator, really. Uh, what was his name? Nope, nope. Uh, Nasser, Nassim, Nasser. Is that right? Nassim, I think. Nasser. So he chooses. He makes the public announcement. We are going to destroy Israel. Not good. They tried. They failed. After that, he goes out of power, and now there's a whole new leadership team over Egypt. And Israel, the whole time all this is happening, is saying to all these states, we simply want you to recognize us as a state of Israel. And we want you to have peace with us. And every time they would reject it, by the way, that that dictator in Egypt, they all got together down in Sudan. All the the Arab leaders got together and they came up with the three no's. Remember those? The first no was no recognition of Israel as a state. Secondly, uh, no peace. And thirdly, no negotiation with Israel. Okay? So how did Israel respond? What could they do? Well, I'll tell you what they did. They waited until Egypt had a better system of leadership. They went and said, we offer you peace, and for peace, we will give you the entire Sinai Peninsula back. That agreement was signed, and they handed all of it back. They also said the same thing to all the Arab nations around them. If you will have peace with us, we will give you land for peace. They didn't have much land to begin with, but we'll give back what God gave us because you attacked us. And never once in all these days, 75 years from the time Israel became a Jewish state, the Arabs have never recognized Israel as a state, and they have never tried to engage in true peace. They have fake peace. Remember Yasser Arafat? Yasser Arafat, PLO uh, leader, he would come to United States. We let him in our nation. He would come and he would go on CNN and say this. He would say it boldly. We want peace with Israel. Now listen, this is documented by missionaries who were in the Middle East at the time. He would go back over to the Arabs and in their native tongue, he would say, drive them into the sea. Total lies. What did America do in their liberal views? 
They gave him the Nobel, the world gave him the Nobel Peace Prize. All through Israel's history as a state, not once has Palestine tried to initiate peace. Not once. Israel has continually tried to initiate peace. After they worked with uh, Egypt and set that up, you know how the rest of the uh, Arabs responded to that? They sent uh, suicide terrorists into Israel to bomb them. It's always been that case. It always will be. They, and, and that's what we deal with today. You've got Americans who do not want to support Israel. These are God's people. And all of it, look here now, listen. It didn't start in 1947. Here you have God in the Old Testament providing for a much smaller nation of people against the Syrians, a great army of the Syrians. It's always been the case. I, I, I be, be honest, if, if, you're, if you're like, you don't believe in God, you're an atheist, uh, just go and look at the history of Israel. That alone should tell you there's a God. There's no way that that little tiny group of people who are surrounded by the enemy should still be there. There has to be a God, amen? That's what we see here. That's what's happening. But you know, the scripture says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails. Take your Bible and let's quickly turn to Psalm 33. I want you to see this, Psalm 33. So in our story, Elisha did not support the corrupt monarchs of Israel. I mean, let's remember now, Israel was wicked at the time that Elisha lived. He didn't support the wickedness, but God did want to provide protection for Israel when the, the Syrians tried to come in and, and demolish them. Why? Because God had another plan for Israel in their wickedness. I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to haul them off into captivity. I don't want to wipe them out off the face of the earth. I'm just going to discipline them. And that's what he did. But, but while the king of Syria is trying to take out Israel's sole counterintelligence scheme, they're forgetting that this is not a human effort. It's, it's a God effort. And they're up against God. Now, Psalm 33. This is one especially after just hearing about this marriage bill that was passed. This is what you need to turn to and meditate upon. Okay, let me read it for you. This is just so powerful. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. You should always be ready to show joy and, and, and praise God as a righteous person. Look, give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and here it is, all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the, Lord of the, uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all the ho their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a, as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses, which I believe he released in the great flood. When he created the heavens and the earth, and it says that he separated the water from dry ground, right? And, but at that time... Um, he had these huge springs beneath the oceans of water. Plus, 
it says that the sky was separated, the expanse of the sky. He literally put this this, uh, shroud around the earth in the sky. That's why there was no rain, because it was the perfect condition for a greenhouse. Great humidity that would water the plants and the grass and the trees from this shroud. And when man became so evil that everything he did was evil, God then released the shroud, I believe, from the heavens. Rains fell for the first time. He he brought forth the deep springs beneath the oceans, beneath the ground, literally came up. And now you have everything on the earth covered, everything, including the highest mountain. I, I personally believe that probably... The, the pressure of that water being released from beneath the ground, that's where a lot of mountains were created. I believe the Grand Canyon is absolutely part of the Great Flood. It's a sign of the flood. But you have these mountains. It was so great, the amount of water that fell for 40 days. Listen to this. It covered the highest peak of the earth by 10 feet. Everything was covered. That's pretty cool, okay? So why did I say all that? I don't know. I don't remember. Anyway, I'm reading the text. Let's get back to our passage. I just love this passage. So he puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. The great nations, with all their wisdom, all their intelligence, God brings them to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart to all generations. What does that mean? that when God promises something, He's going to fulfill it. Blesses the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where He sits enthroned, He looks out on the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse, the tank, whatever military weapon, whatever plane that can fly in the sky for military purposes, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. For That word salvation there, he's not speaking of salvation in a sense of, of, of your, your, your soul, He's speaking of deliverance. The word salvation in the Old Testament is the same word used for deliverance. So he's saying the war horse is a false hope for deliverance. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him 
because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Does it not comfort you to know that in this world, in this day, with all the craziness going on, our God is firmly on the throne? Man's not going to do anything that God, unless God allows it. And sometimes God orders up trouble and trial to discipline even those that he loves. So how God proves himself strong in this unfolding story. Verse 14, here's how he does it. Look, so he sent their horses and chariots with a great army, and they came by, this is the Syrian king, by the way, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now they knew where Elisha was. We're going to get Elisha. We're going to take out the counterintelligence system of Israel. And when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open my servant's eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and, be, and behold, to behold is to like wonderment, okay? The mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. God is a great God. And even when it looked in the real, this realm, that Elisha was going to be done in. Elisha, the man of God, trusted the Lord. God opened his eyes to see what was really the situation. God had surrounded that place with the army of heaven. It was greater than the Syrian army. And he prayed that the servant could see what he saw. And man, if that didn't... Can you imagine seeing that? How that must encourage your heart? Uh, now, first of all, what's interesting here is in order to, to walk in, the, in the, uh, the blessing of God, in order to walk in His sovereign plan, it does require faith. You're going to have to take the Word of God, the promises of God, and you have to put your faith in them, even when it doesn't look like it's working. You have to trust that God is in control when it seems like nobody's in control. When the enemy's trying to lie to you and say God doesn't care about you, you go back to the story at the beginning of 1 Kings chapter 6 and see how God even cares for a seminary boy who lost somebody else's axe head that he couldn't afford to replace. Your God is always in control. You've got to have faith to believe that, to walk in it. And the servant didn't know. All he knew was what he saw. That's a terrible way to live life as a Christian. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit now lives in you. You are now a spiritual being. Prior to the Holy Spirit regenerating your, your, your heart, prior to that, your spirit is dead. It Basically, essentially, it's dead. It's, it's unregenerate. That's the best way to say it. The Holy Spirit, when you're saved, regenerates your spirit. Why? So that you can assess spiritual things. The world cannot assess spiritual things because they have an unregenerate spirit. 
you have a regenerate spirit. You can see beyond what people see in the five senses. I'm not saying that you have this supernatural thing where you can see chariots of fire. I'm saying that you know by the word of God that there's more going on than what you can see in the five senses. Amen? We need that reminder on a regular basis. I live my life. I want to set my sail by what God is doing, not by what man is doing. If you ask me tonight, Pastor, honestly, do you think we're going to find property in order to build a church? My answer, without any hesitation, is if the Lord wills for Bureau Bible Fellowship to have a building, absolutely. And nobody and nothing will block it. Who knows that God's not waiting until the economy's in the, in the tank, that we're in the worst scenario possible, and then God provide a miracle. Here's what we know about God. See, this, all of this, from the first story here through this one, what you're really seeing is you're seeing men, or a man, Elisha, who is joining God in God's work. He's only doing what the Lord is leading him to do. He's joining God. And in the story of the axe head, in the story of the widow with the little bit of oil, there, listen now, there is always a part of the work of God that you and I can do. What was it for the widow? Take the little oil you have and tell your sons to go out in the community. And you go out and you gather all the empty vessels, large and small, whatever you can find, and bring them in your house. That's a work that man can do. God said, that if you want to join me, I'm going to give you your part. Your part is go get the oil vessels. Did it require faith? Yes, because I've got to let people know that I'm in serious financial trouble. She did it, though. And then her part was, God said, now, take those, those empty vessels and take that little bit of oil and just start pouring, and don't stop pouring until every vessel is filled. It takes faith to do that. You're looking at your little vessel. You're looking at this huge vat that they brought in that's empty, and you're going, there's no way. Why even try this? It's not going to work. No, God's given you a part that you can do by faith. She starts pouring. That one's filled to the brim. She's like, oh my goodness. Boys, move it quick. Get another one. They bring it. She never lifts it. She just leaves it. The next vessel, the next vessel, the next vessel until it's all filled. This, this is us. This is our part in joining God in his work. We do what he tells us to do, and he will always give us something that we can do. And then there's parts to his work we cannot do. Only God can do. Only God can make that little vial keep pouring oil. Only God could give Elisha the picture of the real army of God surrounding the mountain. Only God could raise an axe, an iron, from the bottom of the Jordan River to the surface. That's God's part. So I'm not saying to you, Humanism is, you've got to find a way, you've got to do it. That's the only way it's going to happen is if you do it. Humanism, go get 100 people to help you. That's what humanity's for. We can help. We can do anything if we work together. No, you cannot. The last time that they, man tried to do that was when they built the Tower of Babel. And what, what did God do? He knocked it down, gave them different languages so they couldn't work together. God's in control. 
He wants us to do it His way. And His way is that we stop trying to create ways and stop trying to create plans, and we wait and just do what God's wanting us to do. We join Him in His great work. Amen? And that's where we are as a church. We're, we're waiting on the Lord to show us what and when. But now, in the midst of waiting, it's not this. Okay, Lord, you know, whenever. We know that you're just going to do it all. You're going to make it happen. So we're just sitting back waiting for that building to just show up, this beautiful building all ready for us to move in. You know, turnkey. We just know it's going to happen. No, no, no. We need to gather resource. We do our part. And we've been doing that. And there's going to be parts for us to do all the way through this thing. When we find a facility guaranteed, it will not be ready-made for what we need. We're going to have to do some work. But that's where that's our work. God will show us how to do that together while He does His great work. Amen? And the whole thing is His, not ours. Man should never get glory for God's work. I remember as a boy and then became a pastor, a young pastor, and back in the day when I was a young pastor, give my age away, churches didn't have pew chairs. They had pews. And when I was a boy, they didn't even have cushion pews, just wooden pews. You know what I'm talking about? And, uh, and when I became a pastor, you know, I never thought any big deal about that. You know, okay, they're pews. Yeah, everybody's got to... I noticed on the end of every pew, there's a little label in honor of Sister Honeycutt. In memory of, and they'd be on these names on the end of every pew. And uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I guess, yeah, what they did was, that's how they raised the money. You buy a pew, and then we'll let you put a memory sticker or a memory or an honor sticker on the end of the pew. It's your pew. Now, does the Bible tell us to do that? No, that's man finding a way on his own, to do it. What does it lead to? I want you to hear this. Because as we develop as a church and God blesses us with a piece of property, we have to remember this. Here's the fallout of man doing it his way. It starts out innocent. We're just helping the church. We're all buying our own pew, putting our name on the end of it. And back in the early days, walking in, who's that sitting on our pew chair? You know that happened. I know it happened because my mom told me it happened. Who, 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 who are they? Do they not know that that's our people? Look at the name on the end of it. Now, how scriptural is that? How Christian is that? Okay, then here's what happened. Those people die. And you think, oh, okay, we're through all that. It's no big deal. Well, wait till you try to change from pews to pew chairs. And you go to take that pew out of the church. And the siblings or the children of those people or the grandchildren are now really ticked off mad. My grandfather paid for that pew. And you know what churches do? They say, well, here's what we'll do. We'll take the sticker off the end. And we're going to put a plaque. We're going to hang that plaque in the lobby. It'll show all those people that originally gave pew chairs. For what purpose? To show what man did? Really? The church belongs to the Lord. It doesn't belong to man. 
we expanded the church in Palm Beach Gardens, knocked out the walls and made it bigger, and it was a wonderful thing. And somebody came to me and said, Pastor Greg, would you be opposed if we uh, called it the Simstrat whatever, you know? And I said, absolutely I would be opposed to that. Because I didn't do it. We're just joining God in His work. The Lord did it. I, listen, I'm going to tell you something. I am, it, it, I'll just tell you now. So if you wonder, you don't have to wonder any longer. If you're thinking about giving big bucks so you can have your name somewhere on the church, um, keep the big bucks. You should give the big bucks because the Lord has asked you to do that, compelled you to do it out of love, and it's His money, and you're giving it back for His work. Amen. The minute you get your name on it, guess what? There's no reward in heaven for you now. You just got your reward on earth. You go to some places, and man, they got statues of men, statues of women and what they've done for, God, for that church. God forbid. I wouldn't want that to be my reward. But keep my mouth shut, give, and then just let the Lord bring the reward. Amen? That's what we're looking for. This is very important. I know it's... I'm laboring here, but I just, as a church, we want to make sure that everything we do, the Lord gets the credit because it's His work, and that we're not afraid to do our part, whatever that is, knowing by faith, and only by faith will we achieve it. Amen? Good stuff. Okay, verse 18. And when the... What time is it? Okay, we're coming to the end. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man who you, whom you seek. So they came after Elisha, and Elisha asked the Lord to blind them. Now, he didn't blind them physically completely, or they wouldn't have been able to follow him, as it says. They couldn't understand that it was him. God blocked them from knowing him. They were blinded from the truth. So, uh, and he led them to Samaria. He led them right to the capital of Israel, the Syrian army. This is a group of Syrian, this is not the whole army. This is a, a raiding party that he leads into the capital city. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of the men that they, are, they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? I mean, first of all, he's calling him my father. All of a sudden now he believes in, in the man of God, where before he didn't so much. And, and shall I strike them down? And look what Elisha says. I love this, man, showing compassion to the enemy. You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go out to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast, and they had eaten and drunk, and he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So Elisha used diplomacy there. Took care of those men in the capital city. Those raiding parties never came back. Now, I wish I could say that were the case for the king of Syria, he did come with a vengeance because those men were unsuccessful in finding and killing Elisha. So verse 24, afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. He surrounded Samaria 
He cut them off from all water coming in, all food coming in. So now there's only limited supply in the city. And when the supply runs out, now a famine occurs and people start to die. They starve to death. And that's how they would overtake a, a city that was fortified. There was a great uh, famine in Samaria. By the way, so God first releases the raiding party. They go back and they never raid again. But the king of Syria is different. And Israel is still a wicked nation because of the wicked leadership. So God says, I'm not going to let the Syrians take you, but I am going to discipline you. And so he brings the Syrian army surrounding them, bringing them to a point of starvation. And so it was such a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a, of a cab uh, of doves dung for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? He's, he's blaming God for what's happening from the threshing floor or from the wine press. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give, give your son that we may eat him today. That's how turning to cannibalism because they were starving. And we will eat my son tomorrow. So, the boil, so they boiled her son and ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat. But she hid him. He wouldn't let the woman have her son. Though the kindness of Elisha and the king of Israel changed the heart of the Syrian raiders, it did not change the heart of the king of Syria. He launched a large-scale attack. God's in it. God's allowing this to happen. He's allowing the city to go into a, a, a terrible famine. And now they're literally turning to cannibalism. And... It's interesting, in Deuteronomy 28, it contains an extended section where God warned Israel about the curses that would come upon them if they rejected His covenant. Let me read it for you. Write this down, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 52 and 53. 28, 52, 53 of Deuteronomy. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down through all your land. They shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you, and you shall eat the fruit of the womb. There it is. You're going to eat your kids. The flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you, in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. God told them all the way back in Deuteronomy, you're going to turn from me. And if you do, if you don't follow me, this is what's going to happen. Now God's fulfilling it. He's carrying out what he has said. See, God is faithful and God is just. So this is a judgment from God on Israel for disobedience. They rejected him as the king. They abandoned the covenant he made with them. Verse 30, when the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath beneath on his body. And he said, may God do so to me and also more. If the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today, he's so angry by what he saw the women doing that now he turns it against God and the man of God. He wants the man of God killed. 32, Elisha was sitting in the house, his house, 
and the elders were sitting with him. That's the elders of the city of Samaria. So these were men who were godly men, and these were the leaders, the spiritual leaders, who had been rejected by the king. They're sitting in Elisha's home. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha arrived. Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer, speaking of the king, has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the fast door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? In other words, he's coming, and he's trying to go and try and kill me, and the king's coming behind him. And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, basically what he said was what the king said. This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? So that tells us that Elisha had gone to the king in the midst of the famine and said, you need to be patient and wait on the Lord. He'll bring you through the famine. But when he heard the women eating their children, he had had enough, and he said, okay, forget it. Now he's angry at God, he's blaming God, and he's blaming the man of God, and he wants to kill him. And that's why the servant said, why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He's repeating the words of the king. So we'll pick it up next week in chapter, uh, what is that, 7? And by the way, immediately God answers and God provides. But they didn't want to wait. No patience. And you say, well, golly, why did God wait until women were eating children? Again, God warned them from the beginning. Don't turn from me. If you do, you will eat your children. You'll be so hungry. I will bring discipline upon you. God's in control. And uh, that's hard scripture to listen to, isn't it? I can't fathom that. Uh, why not? Our nation is filled with people who kill babies all the time. Why does this bother you? It's no different. You know that, uh, what nation is it, somebody tell me, where literally they recognize that the, the birth year starts nine months. Is it China? Before the baby is conceived or is born. They, from conception, they start, that's the first day of that child's life. They recognize the child, is a, it's a child, not in our country. <laughs> You're not even safe when you come out of the womb. So we shouldn't be surprised by this. But here God is judging. Don't think for a second God won't judge us for it. So um, interesting chapter, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, I do thank you for tonight. I thank you for this time with the body of Christ. And thank you for God, how you will use your word to shore us up, to, to attach us to a safe mooring in a sea of sin. And we're so thankful for that. We're thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.